If you've made your way to the book of Psalms and to Psalm 22, I would remind us while we're here that the book of Psalms is a collection of individual psalms, individual poems and songs. And because they're individual psalms, individual poems and psalms, we don't say turn to the book of Psalms chapter 22. Uh, These are not chapters, but we say turn to Psalm 22. As we read Psalm 22, the words will be familiar. Uh, I wrote that not knowing that we would have just read from Matthew 27. So the words will be very familiar. Please follow along in your copy of God's word as I read Psalm 22. A Psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day and you do not answer. And by night, but I have no rest. Yet you are holy. Oh, you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. In you, our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them to you. They cried out and were delivered. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. But I am a worm and not a man. A reproach of men and despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate the lip. They wag the head saying, Commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver you. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. Yet you are he who brought me forth from the womb. You made me trust when upon my mother's breast. Upon you I was cast from birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. Be not far from me for trouble is near for there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They open wide their mouths at me as ravening and roaring, as a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart like wax is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue cleaves to my jaws, and you lay me in the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me, a band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierce my hands and my feet. I count all my bones. They look, they stare at me. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, be not far off. O you, my help, hasten to my assistance. Deliver my soul from the sword, my only life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth, from the horns of the wild oxen, you answer me. 
Verse 22. I will tell of your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him. And stand in awe of him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. Nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried for him for help, he heard. From you comes my praise in the great assembly. I shall pay my vows before those who fear him. The afflicted will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will worship before you. The kingdom is the Lord's and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust will bow before him. Even he who cannot keep his soul alive. Posterity will serve him. It will be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They will come and will declare his righteousness to a people who will be born that he has finished it. Let's bow our heads. God, we come asking your blessing now on your word. Make us good hearers this morning. We pray that you would break up, break up the fallow ground of hard hearts. That we might receive the seed of the word and that we would be good soil, that that seed would take root and grow and produce fruit. For those here today who are in Christ, adopted children by the substitutionary atoning sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, we pray that you would, you would help us, that you would cause us to look to the cross, that our love and our gratitude for our Savior would grow, that our appreciation for the cross of Calvary would deepen, and that we would boast greater of our Lord Jesus. For those who are here today without Christ, we pray that the preaching of this text would be used by your Holy Spirit to draw them to the Savior, granting them repentant faith, making the Lamb of Psalm 22 and the joys of salvation in Christ theirs. God, for those who continue to reject your grace, for those who refuse to listen, we pray in accordance with your will and your word that the preaching of Christ crucified would be an effective condemnation, leaving them without excuse. And in all things, we pray that you would be glorified and magnified that Christ crucified would be proclaimed as the only hope for sinners. It's in his name we pray. Amen. I mentioned before we read that the Psalms are 
collection of individual psalms. And they are individual, but we must also be aware that there are connections and there are groupings of the psalms which may not be evident to us at first glance. Most broadly, the, the book of Psalms may be divided into five smaller books, five smaller groupings. We can group Psalms by mood or by type. We can group lamentation Psalms and thanksgiving Psalms. We can have collections of Psalms by topic like messianic Psalms or royal Psalms. Psalm 22 happens to be a messianic, a royal psalm. Psalm 22 is in a group of five psalms focusing or pertaining to kingship. Psalms 20 through 24. Psalm 20 and 21 are focused on the kingship of Messiah. Psalms 23 and 24 are focused on the kingship of Yahweh, of God's kingship. And Psalm 22, here in the middle, we find it focused on the kingship of Jesus Christ, the God-man. Psalm 22, as we read it, we can tell that it is addressed directly to God, offered as a prayer. But we must ask ourselves... Just like the Ethiopian eunuch who read from Isaiah and he asked Philip, is the prophet writing about himself or about another? We have to ask that when we come to Psalm 22. Is David here writing about himself or is he speaking of another? And there are sufficient reasons to conclude that David is not writing about himself here in Psalm 22. There are a few correlations made with David's life. David did undergo some hardships in his life, and this psalm certainly speaks of hardships. But this psalm speaks of things which could never be applied to David. So we must conclude that David speaks here of someone else, someone other than himself. In the New Testament, David is called a prophet. We know that he's a king, but he's called in the New Testament a prophet. And this psalm is a prophetic writing from this prophet king's pen. This psalm is a prophecy when written of things that would come to pass. It is a prophecy of the suffering of the coming Messiah. And we know that this psalm is a prophecy about Jesus. As we read these words and we say, wait, these are words that Jesus said from the cross, but how can you say it's a prophecy? Wouldn't, wouldn't it be easy? Couldn't Jesus have faked us out by just intentionally quoting from this song in order to give us a false impression that he is the Messiah? Wouldn't that be an easy scam for someone to, to pull off? Well, as we read through this psalm, there are things that certainly anyone could quote. But we'll see, as Jesus did quote from this psalm, we also see things prophesied 
about those who gambled for Jesus' clothes, about those who pierced his hands and feet. And the answer comes to us pretty easily. It would be impossible to get the host of Jewish leaders, the Roman politicians and the soldiers to comply with some fraudulent scheme to falsely claim that Jesus is the Messiah. No one was standing there with him. He was abandoned and forsaken. And the scriptures prophesy of the suffering and death of the Messiah. Psalm 22 is one of those passages that speaks of this suffering and death. Jesus Christ's atoning death on the cross. This psalm can be divided into two parts. We're going to see today that can really be divided into three. The two parts that, that this psalm evenly and easily split into is psalm, uh, verses 1 through 21 and then verses 20 through, 22 through 31. It's hard to get out. Today we're going to find that we won't get past verse 1. But we'll come back to this psalm next week. The first 21 verses of the psalm speak of suffering. And the final 10 verses speak of victory and deliverance. In this first section, we read of Jesus the Messiah crying out to the Father in anguish. And his pleas are unanswered. And it is clear Look in verse 3, yet you are ready. It is clear that Jesus' trust in the Father does not waver. It does not wane throughout his suffering. In verses 1 through 6, there are some important things for us. Important things that if we get them wrong, we will be wrong about the person and the work of Jesus and we will be wrong in our understanding of who God is. We must get these right. We must, this morning, be theologians. We must consider theology. This is not just an endeavor for James Dolezal. This is for every believer. The first verse, the first words of this psalm the first words of this prayer are, my God, my God. And we have to understand this. You've, you've heard me say, you've heard it preached, you've heard it taught, Jesus is God. We refer to Jesus sometimes as the second person of the Trinity or the second person of the Godhead. Not that he is second in power or second in command. Jesus is equal with the Father and the Holy Spirit in every way. Our catechism says it in this way. There are three persons in the Godhead. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one God. The same in essence, equal in power and glory. 
Jesus is God. Jesus is eternally coexistent with the Father and the Spirit. This means that Jesus was not created or made, that He did not come into existence, but that He has always been because God has always been and Jesus is God. When Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, that's not when he came into existence. He existed in eternity past. But when Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, he stepped into creation, as it were, and became at that time our brother in humanity. Without ceasing to be God, without God changing in any way, Jesus became man. Again, our catechism says this, Christ, the Son of God, became man by taking to himself a true body and a reasonable soul being conceived by the Holy Spirit, by the power of the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary and born of her yet without sin. Jesus is God and at the incarnation, Jesus became a man and remained God. Jesus now, we say, is the God-man. The God-man. Jesus Christ, the God-man, is the only Redeemer of God's elect, the only Savior. Again, from our catechism, the only redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ, who being the eternal son of God became man and so was and continues to be both God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. For most of us, the word hypostatic union is not in our everyday vocabulary. And I say this, I'm, I'm getting off my notes, but I, I say this because you've heard me three times quote from our catechism, which is so easy to memorize, so easy to learn these truths for you and for your children. So that these great truths that escape the understanding of so many today might be instilled in your children by way of a little memory. Christ the Son of God became man. And so was and continues to be both God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. These teachings that we are speaking of here this morning are big doctrines and they have big consequences. And that's why we have to get these things right. Jesus is fully God and fully man. We say sometimes Jesus is 
very God and very man. That's an old way of saying truly God and truly man. Our confession in the chapter on Christ the mediator is very clear when it says two whole perfect meaning complete and entire and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion composition or confusion Jesus is not 50% God and 50% man Jesus is not a mixture of God and man Jesus is fully God and fully man. Confession continues. Which person is very God. And very man. Yet one Christ. The only mediator between God and man. So when we speak about Jesus. We talk about him. In ways that cannot be spoken of any other human. And we speak of him in ways that, that cannot apply. To the father or the Holy Spirit. For instance, we say that Jesus is divine. Jesus is God. He is eternal and eternally equal with Father and Spirit. And you can't say that about any other human. And we say that Jesus during his time on earth was hungry and thirsty and sleepy. That Jesus experienced temptation to sin. That he experienced pain and suffering and agony. And we can't say those things about the Father nor the Spirit. God can never be hungry. God can never be sleepy. God can never experience pain or suffering. And God cannot be tempted to sin. Neither tempteth he any man. So how is it? That we come to this text. We say these things about Jesus. And we're very careful to say. Jesus experienced humanity fully as a man. He did. He felt. He was tempted. He lived according to his humanity. That's, that's kind of formulaic. Because we don't want to divide the person of Jesus Christ and say, well, he experienced these things in his humanity, but he didn't experience them in his divinity. He experienced them fully according to his humanity because divinity, the divine, cannot experience these things. So he experienced, he lived According to his humanity. But the divine never hungered. The divine never experienced emotion. Nor underwent temptation to sin. This is very important for us to understand. When we come to the cross of Calvary. And we see Jesus die. Jesus did not pass out. He did not faint. The Romans were experts in killing people. They were experts in torturing people 
and keeping them alive to experience that torture. And they knew when someone died. And Jesus died. Did God die? It does my heart good to see just regular Christians who just read the Bible hear a question like that. Did God die? And you're like, no. Because that's the right answer. It's absurd to think that God could die. Jesus, however, according to his humanity, truly died. Jesus, according to his divinity, is life and resurrection and cannot die. But according to his humanity, he truly died. As surely dead as dead can be, Jesus died. But God did not die. Jesus died according to his humanity. And this is how we can say that Jesus is God and Jesus died. He died according to his humanity. So when we come to these words in Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we hear those words in Matthew 27 on the lips of Jesus Christ. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We must understand that Jesus experienced things according to his humanity. For the time while he was on earth, Jesus laid aside the benefits of his divinity. He did not stop being God, but he did not avail himself to the benefits of being God. During his time on earth, Jesus worshiped the Father and he worshiped according to his humanity. He fulfilled the law as a man. And thus he could say, my God, my God. Now we continue in this verse and we see another very important thing that we must get right. But if we have well established the divinity and the humanity of Jesus, the two distinct natures in one person forever, then that should help us keep from error. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This forsaken, we need to understand forsaken. We go to the dictionary and we look for forsaken and we see, well, forsaken is to leave, to abandon, to desert someone. And then sometimes we, I mean, we know what that word means, to forsake, and, and we, get, we get our minds going and we think of Jesus and we might get super sentimental and we let our minds run away with this thought of Jesus being forsaken and we say something like, the Father turned his back on the Son. We sing songs, songs that we love, how deep the Father's love for us and how emotional does that make us? And then we say as we sing those songs, 
the father turned his face away. We sing, we sing a song that I love, his robes for mine. His robes for mine. And if you have sung that in this church, you know we rewrote the lyrics. Because had we not rewritten the lyrics, we would say in that song, God estranged from God. We had to rewrite it. These thoughts. God turned his back on the son. The father turned his back on the son. The father turns his face away. God is estranged from God. Those things spark feelings inside of us. They make emotions to well up. But we need to ask, are these things right? Do these things fit with theology proper? Does this fit with our understanding of the Trinity? Did the Father and the Son have a rift at the cross? Was God truly estranged from God? We must be careful in our thinking and cautious in what we sing. That we don't divide the Trinity. That, that in our minds we can't divide the Trinity. But that we don't in our own minds try to divide the Trinity. That we don't try to tear the Godhead apart for those who are listening. We must maintain, beloved, that there is, there was and is no tear in the fabric of the Trinity on the cross. It would be equally difficult, better said, it would be equally impossible for you to become God as it would for Jesus to cease being God. If Jesus could cease being God, he can't. It's impossible. We must remember that we have already learned that Jesus on the cross suffered according to his humanity. So when we read, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We must see that this abandonment, that this forsakenness was according to his humanity. Now, don't think that I'm trying to ease the suffering of the cross or that I'm trying to lessen the sacrifice of Jesus. He suffered according to his humanity for humanity and in the place of human beings who would believe on him. We have to keep these important things, these important doctrines in mind when we look at texts like this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And as other texts of scripture as well, I'd like to consider just three verses of scripture. 
These may be familiar to you. You can write them down. You can turn if you need to. 2 Corinthians 5.21 2 Corinthians 5.21 He made him who knew no sin. That's Jesus. The Father made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He made him who knew no sin to be sin. Some false teachers have blasphemed by using this verse to say that Jesus Christ became a sinner. I will not quote from these false teachers. As I started, as I was preparing this, I, I couldn't bring myself to even write it down, much less to say it publicly. The idea is this, that something happens to Jesus on the cross by some sort of metaphysical change that Jesus was transformed into the worst sinner that has ever existed. But we who know theology, we know that Jesus is fully God and fully man. And for Jesus to become a sinner, he would have to cease being God, which is impossible. God cannot sin. Calling Jesus a sinner is a blasphemy. This is a wrong interpretation of this text, 2 Corinthians 5.21. When we read that the Father made Jesus to be sin on our behalf, we're reading here a figure of speech, a literary tool that communicates to us that Jesus received the, the blame and the punishment do for every sinner for whom he died. And he suffered according to his humanity for that sin. Jesus, the God-man, suffered according to his humanity so that we, his brethren in humanity, would be forgiven of our sin based on his payment for our sin. That's 2 Corinthians 5.21. Next let us consider Isaiah 53. Verse 10. It pleased the Lord. To crush him. It pleased the Lord. The Lord was pleased. To crush him. But we remember that Jesus is fully God. Can God be crushed? No. God cannot be crushed. God cannot be bruised. So clearly, Jesus on the cross of Calvary was crushed according to his humanity. And it pleased the Father to crush our Savior for our sin. And finally, let's consider Philippians 2, verses 6 through 7. 
although, speaking of Jesus, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. Emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. He emptied himself. We have this statement again that could lead us to confusion or to error. Christ emptying himself. Some have interpreted this to mean that Jesus Christ, when he came to earth, ceased to be God. But in Bible interpretation, we must never interpret one verse or passage in a way that does violence to or, or contradicts another verse or passage. We can't interpret this verse to say that Jesus ceased to be God because that causes scripture to contradict. First of all, one who is God cannot cease to be God. And Philippians 2 does not teach us that. It does not teach us that Jesus ceased to be God or that the Godhead was in any way broken. Here we understand that Jesus Christ, who was fully God for a time during his 33 years of earthly ministry, he did not take full advantage of his deity. He emptied himself of those benefits and he lived as a man, as, as a baby. Jesus learned and he grew just like you and me. I've heard people say in the manger Jesus could have spoken to them because he already knew how to talk. As a newborn infant, he could have gotten up and walked away because he already knew how to walk. As though Jesus, when he emptied himself and became a man, did not endure and, and put himself under the same things that we all undergo. Learning to speak, learning to walk. Jesus learned and Jesus grew just like you and me. Jesus memorized scripture and it wasn't just so easy for him because he was the author. He worked at it just like you and I must work at it. He struggled with the same common difficulties that all humans share. He was tempted to sin. Tempted to sin in every way like you and like me, but he without sin. His human state, because he was born of a virgin without a father and he did not inherit a sin nature. His human state being without a sin nature, but being able to be tempted to sin was very much like that, like the state of Adam in the Garden of Eden before the fall. And this is why we call Jesus sometimes the second Adam. We're just barely getting started in this psalm. As a matter of fact, this might just be an introduction for where we go with this psalm next week. But we'll have to leave off here for now. But we've seen this this morning. The theology of who Jesus is must be known well and maintained as we study this psalm and as we study the rest of Scripture 
Because knowing who Jesus is helps us to understand exactly what he did on Calvary's cruel cross. Why is that event such an important and historic event? Men have died. Men have been crucified. And let me say this. Men, a few, have died and been raised from the dead. Why is this Jesus Christ's crucifixion, death, burial, and resurrection? Why is this so important and such a historical event? Christ Jesus, God of very God, took on flesh and became a man. He was not born on this earth as a king or even as a noble man. Even that would have been a, a condescension on his part. Even that would have been a humiliation for the son of God. But he was born in a low condition. He was made subject to the law of God. All the rituals and the rites, as well as the moral requirements of the law, he was submitted to. He underwent the miseries of this life, the sickness and the suffering that is common to all humanity, even the brutal beating and the torments of being crucified by Roman soldiers. He subjected himself to all this. And all those things, coming to the cross, having been beaten, nailed to the cross, where most men who died would die of suffocation, all that wasn't the worst of the sufferings. All that wasn't the reason to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? On the cross, the sins of all who would be saved were laid on Jesus. And the wrath of God for that sin was measured out upon him in that place. And in the space of three hours, Jesus suffered the equivalent punishment for our sins, which we would have tried to pay for for eternity and not made a dent. But he paid the full price and he paid the full price in our place. On our behalf. And when he was done. He declared. It is finished. And then he died. Jesus died and was buried. And on the third day. Day, 
as proof and affirmation that Jesus' sacrifice was accepted as payment for sin, God raised him from the dead. And his resurrection is hope for we who trust in him, for we who believe in him. His resurrection is our hope that we who have placed our faith in him for salvation, we will also be raised to eternal life. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God, we pray that you would apply these words to our hearts. We pray that you would draw sinners to Christ Jesus, granting the grace of faith and the grace of repentance. God, we pray. We pray that we would believe these things factually, but that we would believe these things personally. Not that Jesus died, but that he died for me. Not that he paid for sin, but that he paid for my sin. We pray that your Holy Spirit would work in our hearts. We pray for the salvation of our loved ones. So many, Lord, who do not have the time that they think they do. 